Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is uh, David Roberts. I think the slide is going to reflect that in a moment. And one of the pastors here on staff, it is lovely to see you all this morning. Um, before we get started, uh, I need to do something that has absolutely nothing to do with the talk or the message. Uh, there's been a bit of an ongoing spat uh, amidst our teaching team. Um, I've largely been uninvolved. Uh, it's mostly been between uh, Kim and Matt, but but sort of kind of like a, a stray piece of, um, I don't know, collateral uh, flew out of Kim's mouth last weekend um, and, 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 and struck me. Uh, it was... Um, uh, she, she, she referenced the fact that I'm really into uh, like fantasy things uh, and, and suggested uh, rather flippantly that uh, on some level this is like an escape from my real life and has nothing to do with like any of my past experiences. Uh, and so, uh, Kimberly, um, I ask you, were you at the Battle of Naboo? Were you struck down? By a Sith Lord, like I was, you can, uh, if you don't recognize me, it's because uh, you've never seen me with that long of hair, or that high of a hairline, um, but if you don't recognize me here, then uh, perhaps another, another example, Kim, were you at the Battle of Helm's Deep? Were you, did you show up <laughs> at first light on the fifth day from the east with Aomer? to save the free peoples of Middle-earth from the RVs of Isengard? Because I did. <laughs> I didn't see you there. Maybe you were hiding somewhere. But I was there, so. Anywho, just wanted to set the record straight on that front. Uh, these stories are my stories. They are very, very important to me. <laughs> um, Anywho, uh, like I said, that had nothing to do with uh, anything else this morning, but needed to get it out of the way. Uh, we, are, we are wrapping up this series uh, this morning, The Places We Go. It has been a, uh, a trek, a journey, an exploration through, uh, in part, um, the work of Brene Brown, uh, specifically in her book, The Atlas of the Heart. Uh, and then more kind of broadly, more generally, uh, we've been exploring uh, the places we go, specifically perhaps the emotions we turn to. Uh, when certain things uh, happen in our lives, when our experiences uh, take us to places perhaps that we didn't expect, didn't want, uh, didn't ask for, uh, and how to navigate those things. And uh, Brene's book, uh, Atlas of the Heart, is, uh, if you haven't experienced it, haven't re uh, read it, haven't watched the HBO special on it, uh, it's a great primer, it's a great uh, resource, a great tool to help us uh, map hence the name Atlas, to help us map our emotions, find language, um, put to words uh, what we're experiencing, what we're feeling. Uh, one thing I do share in common with Kim, even though she didn't join me at the Battle of Helm's Deep, but uh, one thing that we do share is, um, I don't know, we'll call it a um, awkward relationship with uh, emotions, uh, with feelings. Um, and what I want to talk about today, the way I want to close this is, I want to explore where we go when words fail. Uh, this has been, uh, broadly speaking, an exploration of what words we need, what words uh, we can find, what words we can cling to, uh, perhaps what words we can discover uh, to have a more accurate, more precise 
uh, more direct uh, relationship uh, with our emotions, with our feelings. And um, don't hear what I'm not saying this morning. That is excellent. I would highly recommend um, the book in particular and just the, the uh, exercise of finding better, more accurate, more precise words uh, more specifically. But I'm going to talk about when those words fail, because in many ways that has been my experience. Not to leave out um, another uh, prominent fantasy franchise, but uh, I want to kind of kick things off uh, with a quote from um, a different wizard, I guess, than myself. Um, uh, These are the words of uh, Albus Percival Wolfric Brian Dumbledore. Uh, He says, words are, in my not-so-humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic, capable of both inflicting injury and remedying it. Um, And that's been my experience. Uh, I remember at a very early age, very early, would have been two or three probably, um, and yes, I can remember that far back, it's a blessing and a curse. Um, I remember having an experience uh, with my parents where uh, I think for the first time I, and, and, and if, if I remember right, I think my, my father goaded me into this, but I think for the very first time I said something like, I love you, or, or something along those lines to my dad. He thought that was really cool. So he took me into um, like their bedroom or their bathroom where my mom was and was like, hey, tell your mom what you just told me. And so I said, I love you. And her response was overwhelming. Um, I mean, she was very excited, she was very, very positive, but there was an, um, an overwhelming amount of you know, feeling or energy or emotion that she then like, bestowed upon me uh, that I recoiled from. And at that age, I didn't have words for that. It was, it was disruptive, it was uncomfortable, um, it, it was scary. And I remember it vividly. Um, more vividly than, than, than most other memories from that time of my life. And ever since then, um, my relationship with words has been uh, like one of a collector. Um, I didn't have words for it back then, but, but as I've grown and as I've reflected on my experiences in life, I've realized that for me, words have been a tool, a kind of defense mechanism, a buffer. Um, if you've hung out with me, you've probably noticed or experienced uh, some words that maybe you didn't previously know. Um, and not just like nerdy fantasy stuff, but like um, what people might call like, you know, $2 words or things like that. I don't know if those people still exist, but, um, you know, big words, obscure words. And, and there's an irony to this because for me, words have been... Um, As I've collected more and more words, I think my aim has been, if I, can, if I can describe my feelings, if I can describe my emotions as precisely, as accurately, as thoroughly as possible, well then I can control them, I can have mastery over them. And so I have collected, I have learned, I have gathered, I have practiced, and then I have utilized uh, more and more words um, in an attempt to control the way that I feel. Um, And this has largely been unsuccessful. (laughs) Um, And and that that, that failure shows up on a few levels. First and foremost, um, 
the, the, the ironic twist of my, of my pursuit here has been uh, the more words that I gather in order to kind of lock down, arrest, um, take hold of the feelings and emotions that are so threatening to me, the less I'm understood. <laughs> Um, the more complex I come across, the more uh, obscure my meaning is to other people, um, which in turn creates a sense of isolation. And in part, you'd think that, well, that's what you were going for, right? If the emotions of yourself and the emotions of others were overwhelming to you, uh, don't you really want that? And the answer is no, because all I really wanted was to not be overwhelmed by the connections that were being made. It had nothing to do with me not wanting to make them at all. And so, so that's kind of the ironic twist to that. More recently, I've discovered a new word. Not discovered it, it's a word that I've known about or known for a really long time, but it's a, the discovery portion of it was, uh, uh, I began to relate to this word in a new way. Uh, some of you have heard me say this um, from here a couple times recently, but uh, that new word, or that new word at least as it relates to me, uh, is the word autism. Uh, and as my relationship, my identification with this word has grown over the last couple of years, um, that too has kind of been a form of a blessing and a curse. The blessing um, is the explanatory power. All of a sudden I have a, a word, a category, an umbrella term that retrospectively I can look back and it describes so many experiences in my life that were overwhelming or that were confusing, um, things that at the time uh, were disruptive for me. <laughs> Even more than that, I, I think it describes a lot of memories I have that at the t in the moment I was completely oblivious as to what was really happening. Um, so there's a freedom in that. It's been a freeing word for me, but it's also been um, a frustrating word because uh, there's a lot of assumptions, a lot of baggage, a lot of uh, stereotypes around this word. Um, in many ways, it has changed the way that people look at me, interact with me, experience me. Um, but it's also created a, a, a sort of distrust internally of the way that I experience, relate to um, myself. Uh, I had to come over, uh, overcome quite a bit of um, kind of imposter syndrome uh, as I related to this word, uh, in part because in certain ways I don't match the stereotypes, um, in no small part because of what I'm doing right now, standing up and talking to all of you. Um, I've had to go back and, and, and re-examine so many of my experiences, so many of the ways that I uh, relate to and show up in the world and, and, and compare those to the stories of others and realize that what I thought was normal, what I thought was me showing up in a way that was consistent with everyone else was me having to mask or overcome or, or change in some way what was the most natural way for me to show up in a given experience, a given encounter, in a given instance. And so, so it's been a mixed bag. I say all this, I recount all this, and if I'm being perfectly honest, this is probably like more personal story than I've ever given up here. Uh, I don't like sharing personal stories, and this is, this is where Kim is probably closer to the truth than I'm wanting to give her credit for uh, in all of my examples. Um, I am all too happy to tell you in excessive detail about the things that I'm interested in. If you give me an inch, 
I will give you the complete history of Middle Earth. Um, I will give you all sorts of obscure details about uh, various sports and teams and things that I like. I can tell you um, a lot. I can tell you a lot about what a lot of white dudes think about God. Um, but when it comes to actually talking about myself, you can learn a lot about me, kind of by reading between the lines of all of those other things. But when it comes to actually talking about myself, my experiences, my family, what makes me tick, I typically recoil, despite, like I said, having a plethora of words to describe those experiences, I would rather leave those words unused, unsaid, because it's still a little overwhelming for me. But I wanted to start there because I think my experiences are a good illustration of this sort of paradoxical relationship that we have with language. And um, I want to unpack that a little in a moment. But before I do that, uh, there's a, the last couple of years I've had a sort of a renaissance, a, a kind of a rec reclamation. Reclamation is one of, the, one of the programs, one of the experiences that I do here. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a class, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, that I lead where we get to explore uh, doctrines, theology, passages in the Bible, things like that, that maybe used to mean something for us and then have come to, uh, well, not mean that anymore, can't mean that anymore, because perhaps what it used to mean doesn't work, uh, was traumatic, harmful, abusive in some way, and so what does it look like to uh, reclaim, to translate, to uh, reinvest in these ideas? And I find myself returning to the first couple chapters of the book of Genesis a lot. It's, I think, in part... Um, it's, it's really fertile soil for the Reclamation Project because if you grew up in church like I did, uh, these, uh, the entire book of Genesis is, is like Sunday school go-to because uh, there's a lot of weird stuff that happens and it, and, and it lends itself well to, I think, piquing the imagination of children and getting them interested in the Bible. And so uh, one of the stories that I've reclaimed frequently uh, in previous sermons is the story of the fall. Uh, you know, Adam and Eve and the fruit, which wasn't an apple, uh, and the serpent, which wasn't Satan, and um, that's not what I'm going to do today. So if you didn't hear those, sorry. If I just like got you interested in that story, that's not what I'm going to talk about. Um, I want to go back a little further. You can't go back much further. That's Genesis 3, but I want to go back to Genesis 1, because my relationship with the Genesis 1 story has evolved as my own relationship with my experiences and my relationship with words, with language, with speech has evolved. Because Genesis 1 involves words, it involves speech. In fact, it involves the words and the speech of God. You're probably familiar with it. If not, I'll at least give you the intro here. It says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I'm going to pause right there. So... In this creation myth, I'm going to say that gently in case that's not a word that you want to associate with this story. It's a, um, I think the best way to describe Genesis 1, um, if you're in the current reclamation class with me, we're reclaiming Christmas, it's super fun. Uh, you're lost if you're not there. Uh, but if you're in the current reclamation class with me, we're talking about the Christmas story uh, at the beginning of uh, Matthew and Luke's gospel. We're talking about them as uh, 
here come some of those big words, uh, parabolic overtures. And what a parabolic overture is, it's a, it's a parable. It's a, it's, it's a metaphorical story that could be true, doesn't have to be true, or let me say that another way, could be factual, could be historical. It doesn't have to be. And crucially, it doesn't have to be factual or historical to be true. In fact, the truth of the story transcends history, transcends factuality in some way, and communicates something that is um, universal in, in a meaningful way. That's the parabolic part. And then the overture part names the fact that these stories are like a microcosm of the, the entire narrative that follows. So just to use Luke, for example, uh, in the book of Luke, uh, you see the centering and the elevation of women in the Christmas narrative, which is something that's consistent through all of Luke's gospel. You see the elevation of the poor and the marginalized, in the, in the shepherds primarily, another consistent theme in Luke's gospel. And then you see the ever-present um, sort of interruption of the Holy Spirit, which is a big theme for Luke. So that's a, a parabolic overture, and I think that's what's happening here in Genesis 1. You see um, a kind of truth that transcends history or factuality, and you see um, kind of a microcosm of the whole of the narrative, all of Genesis kind of captured in one setting. All right, And so things begin formless and void, and then, quite famously, God speaks. And God said. And I'm not going to put all the verses up there because that would be kind of long and tedious, but uh, basically what happens through the kind of the, the seven day period of the, of the narrative is that God speaks things into existence. Famously, light comes first, and infamously, I'm going to forget the order of the rest of the things, and so I'm not going <laughs> to belabor that. But um, at each moment, God kind of completes uh, a day, kind of completes a, a, a facet of creation renders a judgment on it, and then continues. And my evolving relationship uh, with this narrative is to see some level of failure in the progression. And that might sound scandalous. Failure on the part of God, failure on the part of creation. Remember, this is before the, the whole fall narrative. So, so, so how could there be any kind of failure before sin or darkness or uh, you know evil enters the world? Well... There is something, there's something in the progression of the narrative that suggests to me that God was, God was trying to name something. Um, prior, prior to any of this, uh, there was just God, per the narrative. Uh, there was just God and God's self, nothing else. And then God began to imagine, dream, and then speak into existence uh, that which is both not God but then in some level, because it's coming from God, part of God, and God starts with light, moves on to you know, the stars and the sun and the earth and, the, and then the plants and then the animals. And, and at each moment, it's not quite right, or at least not quite complete, because God continues. There's, um, there's a kind of failure uh, to speak God thoroughly, completely, accurately, such that God is motivated to keep speaking. It's the failure of God to exhaustively, to finally, to ultimately describe God's self that leads God to keep talking. And with every 
uttered word, every additional syllable, every command, more of creation springs into existence and we get maybe an incrementally more whole, full, holistic picture of the being of God. And I like this reading. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that this is the only reading, nor I'm going to tell you even necessarily that this is some sort of like contextually accurate reading. Uh, you'd have to talk to um, like a Hebrew scholar or a Jewish scholar about that. But it's a meaningful reading for me because I think it, it, it reflects both my own relationship with language, and I think it also ref, uh, reflects kind of more of a, I don't know, psychoanalytically or scientifically accurate uh, view of uh, humanity's relationship with language. Um, this is the part where I get a little technical. Um, if you feel like I've already been technical, I apologize. This is the part then where I get a little more technical. Um, we, are, we are beings that are born twice. And I don't mean that in like, a, like an evangelical born-again sense. I mean that in a very literal sense. We're born like physically. And then at a very early age, and some would argue even before we're born, we have a second birth, and that's our birth into language, our birth into the symbolic, our birth into meaning, okay? Like I said, a little technical. And what I mean by this is that we don't actually have any kind of direct access to the world around us. Our experience of one another, our experience of the world, even our experience of ourselves is mediated. There's a gap, and that mediation, that gap, is what we call the symbolic, which includes language. It includes, um, it, 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 it's like the air around us. It is uh, essential for life, but we can't see it. We can experience it. On some level, we can see its after effects, but we don't have direct access to it. So when you think about um, anything in your life, you, you, there's an image perhaps related to it, uh, but then there's, there's words, there's language, there's experiences. It's not just the words themselves, but it's, it's all sense of meaning. And that's all brought in to our experience of the world. And, and it's attempted, we attempt at least to capture it with language, with words. And here's the problematic part. Words are both lacking and excessive. There's a paradox there. Have you ever been in a situation where um, you're talking to someone, someone who shares your language, shares your native tongue, and you seem to be talking past one another? Um, it's probably an everyday experience. In fact, um, I would venture to guess that it is an everyday experience, and when we don't think it is, it's just because we didn't notice that we were talking past the person that we were conversing with. Because at any moment, a word can both mean more than what you think it means. And I don't just mean that like, words can have like, synonyms and homonyms and things like that. But, but your, the, the meaning that you associate with the word um, is not necessarily going to match perfectly with your conversation partner. And then at the same time, so, so in that sense, you know, words can be excessive. There, there can be meaning that exceeds what you're trying to communicate. And that meaning kind of leaks out into the world and, and infects in a certain way the communication that you're having. But then there's also a sense in which words are lacking. Uh, if you've ever, perhaps you're, you're bilingual in, in, in some sense, and you, you've had an experience where you, you wanted to describe something, and maybe your primary language doesn't have a good word for it, doesn't have the right word for it, and so maybe you draw from a different language, from a second language or a third language that you're familiar with that you think describes it 
accurately. Um, many times maybe you know, you're with someone who's not a native English speaker and they might express something like, uh, English doesn't really have a good word to capture um, this experience in, in my culture of origin or in my language of origin. And so language is, is interesting. It is both excessive and lacking at the same time. It's a, it's a kind of paradox or it is one of my favorite words. It's a contradiction. And part of the reason I love the word contradiction, not just kind of what it attempts to mean or kind of means, but, but, but the, the etymology of it, another big word for you. Um, contradiction, contra, against, diction, speech, language. Captured in the word contradiction is the idea that a contradiction is something that rubs up against, that resists, that interrupts, that ruptures meaning, that ruptures language in all language, all speech, all communication on some level is a contradiction, but just like, just like it is contradictory, both lacking and excessive, the very failure of language is the thing that generates new meaning. There is a creative act in language's failure. And this is what excites me kind of anew in this kind of new stage of life, new stage of faith about that Genesis narrative. It is precisely in the failure of language, in God's own failure to describe God's self, that new creation then springs forth again and again, day after day, as the narrative progresses. The excessiveness and the lacking of language is very uncomfortable for us. It disrupts our consciousness, even as I would argue it actually sort of is the, the ground or the foundation for our consciousness. And that would be a little bit too technical for this morning, so I'm not going to really defend that statement. Just trust me, it's true. Um, but we are constantly, as a people, looking to overcome this disruption that language creates for us, that this second birth into this invisible, symbolic universe creates for us. We're constantly looking to overcome it. We're looking for just like I am, new and better ways, new and better words to kind of arrest and, 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 and capture meaning once and for all. And this manifests in so many different ways, so many different attempts to kind of overcome what we experience as this lack. Um, in fact, our entire economic system is built around the promise that this is possible. You know, find the right job, tax bracket, material possession, relationship, experience, and then crucially be recognized as having found it, which is why social media exists. And you will finally overcome this gap that you experience because of the way language works. This gap that you experience because we do not have direct access to the world around us. It's, 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 it's mediated by language, by words. And so I think kind of the, more, the most straightforward way of thinking about this is seeing is that like, you know, this is, maybe this is how we would describe sin and that, and that this is a bad thing and that, you know, you know, with the right relationship with God or Jesus or, you know, religion, spirituality, what have you, this could be overcome and, um, and maybe not in this lifetime, but maybe, maybe like when we die and whatever heaven is or looks like, you know, we'll finally kind of, you know, maybe language will just go away and we'll be able to like psychically communicate with one another or something. I don't know. I mean, there's nothing in the Bible about that. I'm just speculating. But I think a better way of relating to this disruption that we feel 
because of the way language works, is one of embrace. And here's what I mean by that. Just like, um, just like in, the, in the Genesis narrative, I'm arguing that it's the failure of language, the failure of God's own speech to describe God that, lead, that spurs God forward in the creative act. So too is our own failures of language an opportunity, a creative opportunity, an opportunity for, uh, for Genesis, an opportunity for, like, like, like not the book of the Bible, but like what the word actually means most of the time, new creation, an opportunity uh, for another word in the Bible that I think is really important, an opportunity for resurrection. You might be realizing, as you think about this, that um, there's, a, there's a piece of the narrative, of this Genesis narrative, that I've left out, um, a piece that perhaps you would think would contradict the meaning I'm drawing from the story, and that's that at the end of all of the days of creation, God says something else. God looks upon what God created that day and says, it was good. But here's the problem with what you're thinking right now. In English, we have a sort of a, a finite notion of the word good. It, it, the word good is sort of like a period at the end of a sentence. It, it arrests meaning. It, 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 it renders judgment and sort of closes the loop. But the word good in English, uh, which is uh, the word tov or tov, you know, mazel tov, uh, in, in the Hebrew, it means something a bit different in that context. And there's not a good way to render it in English. So we just settle on the word good. But what tov means is there's a sort of infinity to it, a sort of uh, creative potential. Something is, is good not because it is the last word, but because it is a kind of first word, because there is sort of an unlimited generative potential latent within it. And so... When God looks upon God's creation and says that it is good, it is tov, God is not naming something final, something ultimate, something completed within it. God is, is, is identifying and identifying with the possibility latent within the words that God has spoken. And so the contradiction, the paradox still works. It is precisely the failure of language, even God's own language, in God's own creative act. It is precisely that failure that is good, that is tov, because it is the failure of language, the failure of meaning, that generates the possibility for new meaning, for new creation, for resurrection. And the ultimate expression of this, at least within the Genesis narrative, is on the final day, in the final moment, when God says, let us make humanity in our image. And in creating us, in all of our messiness, in all of our failures, in all of our attempts to find meaning in this weird thing we call life, um, in all of our contradictions, God finally sees something that God is satisfied with, at least insofar as God is attempting to describe God's self. And when God looks upon us, kind of this final, messy reflection of God's own self in the act of creation, what does God say? God said it is very good, very tov. 
It is excessively, excessively filled with possibility, precisely because it's excessively filled with a certain kind of failure. So what I want to leave you with this morning is kind of what I've been meditating on for some time now. It's, it's a kind of permission giving. I'm not necessarily consistent in this, but I've done my best over the last couple of years and need to continue to try to do my best to make friends in a way with my failure, not like failure in general, not like, not like the success kind of binary notion of failure that we think of, but, um, but with my failure to finally, ultimately, and completely describe my experience, to, to control emotions, to control feelings, to control the world around me. Not only is it not possible, but there's something beautiful, something generative, something liberating, something hopeful in that failure. To embrace that failure, to embrace my failures, to embrace a kind of possibility, to embrace a kind of resurrection, to embrace a kind of divinity that's actually a feature, not a bug, of us being who we are. And so, I guess my invitation to you this morning is to embrace it as well. Embrace failure is probably not what most people think of when they think of like a uplifting church message, but I think there's something powerful in it because at least through the logic of the God of the Bible, the logic seen in Genesis 1, the logic seen on the cross, the logic seen in the Advent season that we're entering into is that it is precisely in a certain kind of failure that we are invited to be the most hopeful, precisely in a certain kind of failure that new creation is most possible, and precisely in a certain kind of failure that we are most authentically free. That's what I'm meditating on as we enter into this Christmas season. It's my hope that you find something in that as well. Lovely to see you all. Grace and peace.